Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to George Ogilvie, who's the CEO of Battle North Gold, formerly known as Rubicon. Rubicon had a fairly checkered past, having raised 700 million in the last gold bull run, uh, and then come crashing to the ground. And George has done a fairly sterling job, we would say, in terms of introducing processes and changing the business plan of the company to something a little bit more manageable. And that shows a route to market, which I think investors so far have been impressed with. A long way to go, delivering a feasibility study at the end of this year, hopefully raising money off the back of that and getting into gold production in Q3 next year. So lots to discuss. Um, Interesting story. Enjoy the podcast. George, how are you doing, sir? I'm well, thank you, Matthew. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, you're going to tell us all about uh, your company today, including the name change. Um, so how are you? Where are you? What, you must be in Vancouver, are you? No, we're, uh, we're based out of Toronto and okay. uh, we closed the corporate office since March 12th temporarily. So all the executive team are working remotely from home over the course of the last three to four months. How's that gone? Yeah, actually, it's gone very well. I, uh, I had some experience of this before many years ago when I was starting up a small company known as Rambler Meadows and Mining yeah. in St. John's, Newfoundland. And we didn't have a head office, so I, I worked from home essentially from, for five years. It's, is it the tight Scottish roots, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Got to save money on those corporate expenses, put it into the ground with a drill bit. Get the mine up and running first. You're saying all the right things. You're saying all the right things. Uh, and you <laughs> suddenly, before we came on, you you were from you were the kind of just that Motherwell outside of Glasgow. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Back in the day. Back in the day. Very good. Well, look. Um, why don't we kick off with that one minute overview of the story for people new to this, and we'll pick it up from there. Yeah. So Battle North Gold has a project in Red Lake, Northern Ontario. It's a very prestigious gold mining camp that's been around for over 80 years. And there's close to 30 million ounces of gold, which will have uh, come out of that camp. Essentially, we have a project which is uh, shovel ready. There's been over $700 million of investment. So today we have a permitted mill, a shaft, 14,000 meters of development uh, within the mine, a 44 KVA electrical line right into the mine site. And uh, we're in the throes of uh, completing our first maiden feasibility study with reserves that should be out in the fourth quarter of this year, followed by project financing. And uh, this time next year, we'll be in production and pouring our first gold bars in the second half of 2021. Good stuff. Okay, so we're gonna start at the beginning, um, if we may. Um, Obviously, you've had a name change originally from from Rubicon. I don't wanna get into all of that, what's gone on in the past, I think it's well documented, well well covered, and we've put some links that our people are determined to know more. I'm interested in you. I want to know what I'm buying into. So you arrived in 2016, inherited a, a bit of a situation there with what had, what had gone yeah. on. Um, you came as a consultant first and before becoming CEO. Um, what was it that you were brought in to try and fix? Well, prior to joining um, Battle North Gold, I uh, conducted four months of my own due diligence on the project. So I signed a CA, I went into the data room, I visited site, tried to get a sense of what had gone wrong in the past and how could it be fixed and what the potential upside was. And, you know, I I did see a lot of things that did go wrong and I knew that I had the technical skill to fix them. 
So, you know, what we've been trying to do over the last several years is really de-risk the project from a technical perspective. We've been three and a half years at this, and uh, I believe we're very close to showing the market through a feasibility study that we do have a commercially and economically viable uh, viable mine. And I sort of realized three and a half years ago, we, we didn't need, you know, three million ounces in the ground at 10 grams, given all the sunk cost given the $690 million of tax loss pools, a sort of one and a half to maybe 2 million ounce resource deposit, six to seven grams would probably be enough to actually be a commercially viable mine in a $1,200, $1,300 US gold price environment. And of course, successful business is all about timing. Sometimes you need a little bit of good fortune. And I would certainly say we're now coming into a very bullish gold price environment and what a wonderful time to be bringing a mine into production and uh, operating it over the next uh, four to five years where i think we're going to see very robust gold prices that's true but let me stay with stay with the kind of your mining engineer you might understand why i want to get into the weeds of it with you i'm trying to understand about why you're the best guy for it you kind of came in with a clean sheet in a way you didn't have the issues that perhaps previous the previous incumbent management team would have had you were able to not worry about how you how you phrase things how you said things you said i looked at this from a blank sheet of paper trying to understand what the moving parts were and my view is the business the previous business model didn't need to be structured like that we could we could come at this a different way and i guess timing's on your side but how did you get the the company or was there very little resistance to move from previous model to new model well, first of all, we had to get a, a geological structural model that was sound. And although there was 500,000 meters of historical drilling conducted on the project, none of that drilling was what's known as orientated core. So all the drilling that we did over the last three and a half years, which is you know in excess of 100,000 meters of additional drilling now, has all been orientated core. And, and the way you're sort of listeners and viewers should think about that. It, think of it like a clock face on the wall. And uh, the analogy I always use is if there were no numbers on the clock and no distinguishing features, uh, how would you be able to tell the time? So with orientated core, when you remove the core from the barrel of the drill, um, you know in three-dimensional space how that core is orientated so you sort of know where 12, 3, 6, and 9 o'clock is located. When you bring the core to surface and you put it on the geologist bench and he has 12 o'clock facing up, as he you know, measures the depth and the azimuth and the strike of the quartz veins, which typically carry the, uh, the gold mineralization, he can put that into the computer. And because he, we know how the core is orientated, we can see trends developing so we could see where that gold could be contained within other elevations within the mine. And uh, for this project, we saw three trends emerging with respect to the strike and the dip of the mineralization. So the veins run east-west, which is actually perpendicular to the main host rock, which is a high titanium basalt, which runs north-south. But we also saw other veinlets running north-south and other veinlets running northwest-southeast. So this allowed us to head upon what's known as a Rydell shear system. Now, it, it was all conceptualized. It was all theory. 
Um, but that allowed us to put together a new structural model and a new 43-101 in 2018. And then in the summer of that year, we took a 40,000 tonne bulk sample out from underground, 5,000 tonnes of waste, given the mill hadn't ran for a couple of years, 5,000 tonnes of uh, low-grade three-gram material to bed the mill in because it had been cleaned out, so the mill will absorb gold and then 30,000 tonnes approximately from three test tram mining stopes. Now, each one of those step stopes was actually completely mined independently, and we took over 10,000 underground runner mine muck samples, and um, each stop was brought to surface separately and put into its own stockpile, and then ran through the mill individually. So we had the ability to actually do a reconciliation exercise right down to the very 10,000 ton stopping block. And from that exercise, we ended up getting 5,200 ounces of gold out compared to the 4,600 ounces of gold, which the model predicted. So we were 7% higher on tons and 6% better on grade. And uh, that amounted to almost 14% more gold out than what the model predicted. So that sort of gave us, in our opinion, some validation on the geological structural model and also on the 43101 resource that we put together and the various modeling parameters that we were actually using to construct the, uh, construct the resource. And from that moment in time, We've put out an additional three updates to the uh, the 43101 resource, and we have not changed the modeling parameters. So the capping levels remain the same. The radii of influence remains the same. Uh, the resource uh, methodology that we're deploying remains the same. So today we, we believe we have something which is fair, credible, and is a better reflection of what we actually have in the ground compared to maybe where the company was five years ago. Yeah, okay, but that's very, very technical. And I'm trying to, so let me start, let me ask, and which I understand, but there's a big swathe of this audience that won't understand what you just said or why you've said it, okay? So let me start. Give me a breakdown of your shareholders, the share registry. Yeah, 80% of our shareholders would be institutional based. And a lot of those institutions would have known me in my former position at uh, Kirkland Lake, where was, I was a CEO. And my team and I led the uh, the turnaround of McCurtain Lake and in particular the Macassar mine. So when we restructured uh, Battle North Gold in uh, late 2016, a lot of them uh, took up the initial share issuance uh, where we um, issued $45 million worth of uh, new stock. So today they've been very supportive shareholders of Battle North Gold. And I think the thing to understand about that is most of these institutions have their internal technical teams and would have did their own research over the last sort of three to four years. And I'm quite sure that if they had felt that the, the project wasn't going to be successful, uh, they would have sold their shares many, many years ago. So they've, they've stuck with us. And obviously, they've been very happy in the last two to three months with a significant appreciation in the share price. But in saying that, I would still say that compared to a peer group, we're still very much uh, undervalued. And I think there's a significant re-rate coming in this company uh, towards the end of the year. 
Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. You know, you're coming from a very low base, obviously, and the you know the re-rate of the last three months is great. I think it's a it's a it's a high gold you know bull gold environment. Um, I think everyone's benefiting from that, and you're in the right district. You've got the right neighbours. You've got evolution next door to you, and you know we know what they've said. So there's a lot of positive macro theory to this, but you've had three and a half years to try and back up your hunch about what you can do with this and you brought out a p let's let's get into some numbers here because i do want to i do want to come back to um i do want to come back to shareholders in a second i do want to come back to the business plan in a second um but let's talk through some of the numbers because i think it might inform that conversation so the 2019 pea numbers quite positive i mean do you, do you want to run through those remind people yeah well we we, we based it on a 13 25 us dollar gold price or Point with a 0.75 exchange rate, which was 1762 Canadian dollar gold. That's about $7,800 to $800 lower than the current spot price. So on those very conservative numbers, we ended up with an internal rate of return after tax of over 40%. We ended up with $192 million of free cash flow, real free cash flow, over approximately six and a half years of an initial mine life and an NPV only on the project of 135 million uh, Canadian dollars at a 5% discount factor. If you run those numbers today at spot gold prices and exchange rate, the internal rate of return goes over 90%. The NPV on the project is approaching 400 million Canadian dollars, and the free cash flow is well in excess of 550 million. That's only for a six and a half year mine life. The feasibility study is likely going to show at least eight years uh, minimum mine life. Hence, those numbers are going to be further improved upon. Right. Okay. So great. I think that helps position this thing. So you've got a six and a half year or six point two year uh, life of mine. It's a it's a it's a good grade. I mean, where, what's the actual numbers about? Just below five grand. Yeah, six six point four five was the historical was the yeah. previous MI. Now we're at six point uh, six. Yeah, six point six. Okay, fine. So that that's that's a that's a good grade. Um, it's not a massive resource either. So, what this one mean coming back to the business plan? You didn't have the luxury of time. You needed to come up with a a, a plan which showed people potential. And to be able to get that into production because you want to re-rate because of where you've come from um, and then build out the resource with expiration. Is that the plan? Yeah, that's pretty much the plan. Um, now that we're about to show the market that, um, as I said, the Bateman Gold project uh, will be commercially viable. Earlier this year, we've now begun uh, expiration on what we call close proximity targets. So those would be other deposits that are within a couple of kilometers of the mine and uh, the, the, the mill on surface. So McFinley and the Penn zone are the first two deposits that we've started actually drilling on in the last couple of months. And part of the reason why we're looking at that is the mill is actually built, designed and constructed for 1,800 tons per day in the PEA and most likely in the feasibility study, uh, maximum throughput will only be around 1,500 or 1,550 tons per day. So the, we're only running the mill at, let's say, 80% capacity. 
So there's an opportunity to put incremental tons and therefore incremental ounces through that mill and further improve the margins for the company and its shareholders. Right, okay, so we're starting to build a picture of what you're trying to do. So the, the, you're, you're ramping up to that average life of mine, 1,500 tons a day. I, I get that, and the ASIC is, is, is good, it's around sort of just under 900. Yeah, 882 US yeah. dollars an ounce in the PEA. So, right, so give, give or take 900. Um, you're showing a route to market. You're showing that you can do this. You've inherited, as a result of the restructure, a huge infrastructure investment, some 690 million bucks worth. Uh, and again, and sorry to leap around here, but this is quite a complex story given, again, where you've come from. That infrastructure, obviously, very, very valuable. And you've talked about one of the one of the components, which is the mill. But how else was the rest of that 690 million bucks spent? Well, there's a 720 meter deep shaft uh, that has a bottom and a mid shaft loading pocket. The 10 ton skips sit over the cage. So on a full uh, production day, the hoist can bring 24, 2500 tons of rock to surface. So that's fairly significant. Uh, there's a wastewater treatment plant, which uh, allows us to discharge our water. Uh, there's a tailings impoundment area and uh, there's a 44 kva electrical line right into the mine site with uh, surface uh, transformers converting the power down to five kva and sending it underground with two power feeder cables there's also a 200 man camp uh, red lake is known for not having enough labor to satisfy the uh, the labor pool or requirements so typically 30 to 40 percent of the labor is fly in fly out so we already have that camp built and it's in pristine condition, uh, waiting for the new employees as we ramp up in 2021. Okay, so, so it sounds like you've got a Rolls Royce, but you only use it to drive to the shops. Um, so we've, so we, what I'm interested in there is also because of the amount of money that's spent, there's a huge tax loss pool presumably available to you as well, which has some value on the, on the balance sheet at a future date. Well, well, significant because in those numbers I gave you within the PEA, uh, at the end of the 6.2 years of mine life, despite paying no taxes, which in uh, Ontario would amount to over 30% taxation rate, the company still had 521 million Canadian dollars of unused tax pools. And the other advantage of those tax pools is that approximately half of them could be used at some future in the evolution of the company for merger and acquisition. So for example, if you had project A, let's say it was in Ontario and uh, its NPV uh, post-tax was $100 million lower than the NPV pre-tax, if you could structure a deal and put the both companies together and provided it was accretive to both sets of shareholders, that project A's NPV post-tax just improved by over a hundred million dollars. So the tax loss pools are not just extremely valuable to Battle North Gold, but also an, an, an M&A and potentially other strategics out there. Okay, so you raised about nine million bucks in February. We've obviously had COVID, it may have impacted your ability to do work and maybe haven't burnt through the cash as quickly as you thought you were going to. So how much cash have you got today? Uh, we've got just over 12 million Canadian dollars cash in the bank. Based on our current budget to year end, 
uh, and our current burn rate were fully funded through until the second quarter of 2021. Uh, and as I alluded to earlier, with the feasibility study out in the uh, early fourth quarter of this year, we would anticipate having the project financing in place sometime towards the end of the year or very early first quarter of next year. So break that down, because again, it comes back to this business plan, which I was trying to get out of you earlier. It's, it's trying to understand you know, how those numbers flow through. Your CapEx is, as I understand it, uh, was it about 80, 81 million. Um, but you've, you will have financial contribution to that. So what's the net number that you're going to have to raise to kind of get things moving? Um, currently, we're estimating around 100 million Canadian dollars, which includes um, a contingency. There's also a, uh, a, a historical legacy debt that is now, it's due the 31st of December 2021. But it, it, it amounts to today about 14.3 million Canadian dollars. But it is senior secured against the assets of the company. So if there's a debt component within the project financing, any debt provider is probably going to want to have security. So the way in which we would deal with that is we would take out a sprot lending facility at the end of this calendar year when we're doing the project financing. So you have to add that approximate $15 million onto the, the capital requirements. And that's what gets us up to approximately $100 million Canadian dollars. So you can't afford anything to go wrong between now and then because you, you need to pay that off. Well, we need to pay it off. But I mean, obviously, you know, with the feasibility study out in September, October, if we haven't dealt with that debt in December 31st of 2021, I think there's bigger challenges or bigger issues on this project. So we're very confident that that will be that will be dealt with. Now, there's a huge opportunity here again, because we use conservative pricing in the PEA during the pre-production period, there's 44 and a half thousand ounces of gold, which actually gets produced. And at 1762 Canadian dollar gold price, that generated about $75 million of revenue from gold sales over the 20 month ramp up period. If, however, we were producing gold next year at 24 or 2500 Canadian dollar gold price, that extra six, $700 margin is going to give us an approximate additional $30 million of revenue from gold sales. And provided the capex within the feasibility study is in line with the PEA, the funding requirement just went down by the corresponding amount, i.e. $30 million less is required. Okay. Jenko bull runs, strange things happen. People lose their minds. Okay. The last iteration of the Rubicon got you know, nearly $700 million Canadian dollars uh, uh, finance raised off the back of a PEA. Okay. Really unusual. However you look at it, you can say a PEA, it's, it's feasibility standard, and I hear that a lot, but it's, it's not. The variance is, is huge, right? 30 40% either way. And you're raising this off the back of a feasibility study or, or hoping to, and I know you've been technically de-risking this project, but what indications are you getting that people are going to be comfortable enough funding off a feasibility rather than a you know, definitive feasibility study? Well, we've already got nine groups currently in the data room and we brought them in deliberately early so they could get comfortable with all the technical information to date and get their heads wrapped around it. Based on the initial feedback that we've had from some of those groups, 
they've already cleared the technical due diligence. So, you know, provided the financial and economic model that comes out of the feasibility study is robust enough and is able to, uh, you know, look at the various, um, you know, debt ratios and the reserve tail, um, we're very confident that the project is financeable, certainly the portion of debt. The other opportunity we have here, which is unique to Canada, is that because the former company never declared commercial production, the capital development, pre-commercial production capital development that we will put into this mine qualifies as a Canadian development expense, which is CDE, and is therefore flow-through financeable. So of that $100 million we spoke of earlier, in the PEA, approximately $40 million of that was CDE eligible. And we know until recently, you know, the capital markets have been extremely tough in Canada, particularly for the juniors and the developers. But one area where they've been able to access funds is through flow through. So we're very confident that, you know, we can put the debt component in place without over leveraging the company. And a significant portion of the equity can be raised via uh, flow through. Okay. Now, you've got a huge institutional following, but you're getting out there and starting to tell the story a little bit more, trying to appeal to retail, family retail, office. Correct. Yeah, because that, that will help with the liquidity and perhaps drive the sentiment a little bit stronger than this. Um, what are you saying to them? I mean, obviously, we're, we're parking what's going on before. You've come on as Mr. Fix-It. You've done and implemented a few things which are moving this company forward and showing people that it, there is something substantial under the ground and you do know how to get at it uh, economically, which is the key here. Um, so what once you've shown the route to market and you poured next year, what's the upside here? I know you're in the right part of town, but what are you going to do about it? Well, look, we, we haven't spoken about the regional land package, but certainly we have 28,000 hectares of prime real estate in Red Lake. In lots of areas, our land claims are actually adjacent and actually are contiguous with the Evolution Mining's uh, uh, land package. They're obviously a six, seven billion uh, mid-tier Australian producer, which recently came into town and acquired the Newmont Gold Corp assets. We think there's, or we know, there's lots of synergies between those respective land packages and uh, we certainly have some high priorities that we really want to go after. What I've tried to do here with this company, Matt, is really pull it up by its bootstraps. We've known for years about the close proximity targets and the regional land package, but I haven't wanted to go over to go after those because I've wanted to get the core asset up and running and show the market that there is a commercially viable mine there. Had I gone uh, too early to the regional land package, given what happened historically and the negativity around the old company, people would have jumped to the wrong assumption that George already knows Phoenix is a bust and he's trying to saddle up his next pony, as I like to say, and that was never the case. But now that we've technically de-risked this project and we're about to have a maiden feasibility study with maiden reserves and a life of mine plan that's economically viable. That's why this year we're now turning our attention to the close proximity targets. And next year we'll follow that up with the regional land package. And 
you know, it's, it's another reason why only now are we rebranding the company. So I remember three and a half years ago, the first strategic conversation I had when I came in officially as the CEO was about rebranding the company. And I made the decision that I didn't want to rebrand because I wanted people to take meetings knowing they were meeting with Rubicon and it wasn't smoke and mirrors and it wasn't George trying to put lipstick on a peg. And if people didn't want to take meetings, I was perfectly a-okay with that. But now that we have a proven management team, we have the feasibility study coming out with reserves, an economically viable mine, huge upside on expiration. This is why at this juncture in time, we really felt now was the time to rebrand this company and let go of the legacy and the shackles of the past. But, you know, now is the time. It's it's the dawn of a new era, as I said in a, in a previous uh, statement uh, last week. Okay, I buy that. I buy that. You've got to prove a route to market. And you're going through that process. And I think with the feasibility study, you know, I'd like to see what the numbers look like. But you touched on something there. You're looking at sort of contiguous land packages, people like Evolution and, you know, billions of dollars. You've also got people around you like Pure Gold who are now starting to move after years of kind of being quite a boring story. And Great Bear, who's, you know, chosen their own business model, quite frankly, uh, you know, bucked the trend in terms of uh, what, you know, in terms of what the norm is in mining anyway. See, you've got a lot of people around you. So what am I buying into? Am I buying into a development story here who's going to do a little bit of, actually, early stage uh, producer, and then you're going to flip it? Or are you going to be doing the M&A? How does it work? Well, I can tell you with the management team that's running Battle North Gold, we are mine producers and we're going to be taking the lead on M&A. It doesn't necessarily mean it would be in Red Lake. However, I mean, obviously you need two parties to be able to put, uh, you know, a, a, an accretive deal together. I certainly do believe that further M&A activity as warranted and a consolidation of the Red Lake camp would make a ton of sense. But if that doesn't happen, it will not hold Battle North Gold back. We already know that there are other targets out there at some juncture in time that might make sense. And, you know, running a single asset company uh, brings with it its own risks. And a way to de-risk that is to look at other assets in, in safe jurisdictions. And I, I think it would be fair to say that we would be very Canada, if not Ontario, focused with any future uh, M&A. What, are the, what do you think the grades are going to look like going forward? Because I know, you know, I'm sort of looking back historically, you've got you some pretty big numbers thrown out there. I guess in a period where people didn't quite understood the, understand the ore body, you understand a little yeah. bit more because you've done a little bit more drilling over the last three years. Um, but you're at 6.6 is grounds per tonne. Do you think that's kind yeah. of fair, fair for the region? I think within the close proximity to the mine, that's the type of typical grade we can expect. Of course, we're going to have holes like we've had in the past that are multi-multi-ounce, many, you know, hundreds of grams per tonne. But there are other areas where there's low grade. And I think when you put it all together, we're looking at a six and a half gram resource grade in the ground. Now, the good news is, is that the head grade delivered to the mill will be around, you know, five and a half grams. And we can certainly make money on that, which is what it's all about. 
and generate significant returns for our, for our shareholders. The regional land package, as Great Bear Resources has proven, can be a, dif a different beast entirely. And Red Lake is known for being a super high grade and that grade being found in some instances at depth, well below 2000 meters, for example. The Red Lake mine that uh, Goldcorp had before they were taken over by Newmont, their high grade discovery, which was multi ounce, 60 grams per ton, um, you know, two grams, two, two ounces a ton was discovered 2000 meters below surface. And, you know, we've barely scratched the surface there at the, uh, the Bateman uh, Gold Project. So do you think once you do get into production, again, so this is a for, bit forward looking in the sense that you've, you've still got a ways to go before you get into production. Um, and you've kind of described the way that you hope to finance it or hope to be able to finance it. Once you're in production, it's relatively low levels of production. Can you, do you see yourself being able to go to the market just on a pure debt package basis going forward? To be able to fund the exploration, or are you going to have to go into equities dilute, dilute further? Well, the, the the good news is is that you know based on our preliminary models, this this mine throws off a lot of free cash flow. So we would have the ability, in my opinion, depending on how aggressive we got in the regional land package, to fund a lot of that work through our own free cash flow that we generate. So you know, I I think at the end of the day, and maybe it's just my you know, Scottish nature coming out, we, we want to minimize dilution. And, and we know that the company historically got into problems because they took on too much debt uh, based on a preliminary economic assessment. So we certainly don't want to repeat the uh, the mistakes of uh, the old. And, and we're going to be a lot more prudent and conservative on, on how we, you know, manage the finances of the company. Does it all go back in the ground? No, 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 it doesn't all go back in the ground. It's important that we retain profits for the <laughs> for the shareholders. And, and again, I think that comes back to the management of this company. You know, um, we're, we're not explorers, we're not geologists. I think those guys do fantastic work in their own field. But at the end of the day, we're mine builders, we're mine operators, and we're here to make money and profits for our, for our shareholders. Are you worried about the overhang of some of these institutions wanting to get out because they're sitting on huge losses on their balance sheet? Or do you think they're going to come uh, along with you for the ride? No, not actually I'm not because, um, you know, the, I know there's a lot of demand out there as well. And uh, I would expect as we continue to, you know, market the company and deliver on what we say we're going to do, we're going to have more demand out there. And, you know, if, set, if uh, current institutions shareholders in the company want to take some profits off the table i have no issues with that it's up to me and my uh, my team to ensure that we have uh, you know buyers on the back end who can soak that up and continue to drive the share price forward so how important are retail to you then retail are important because as we all know you know retail drives the liquidity that's one area of our business which we need to improve upon uh, if you go back a year ago, you would have seen the retail component of our uh, equity share capital structure would only have been about 10%. Today, it sits close to 20%. And I've every confidence that in a year to 18 months time, we'll probably have that up to 30 to 40%. George, thanks for that run through. It's the first time we've heard the story, first time we've spoken. I've, I've heard what you've said. We will analyze what you've said. And hopefully we'll speak again soon and sort of see how you're getting on because uh, potential's there. It's been a good turnaround story. 
Um, I wouldn't like to have been one of the previous shareholders, but I think going no. forward, it's, uh, it's it's a very interesting story. Thank you for your time. Well, exactly. Well, thank you, Matthew. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.